This podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme and is brought to you with the support of BPI France. You're listening to the Fintech Podcast, the show that goes deep into the stories, the successes and failures that went into creating some of the world's most fantastic fintechs. I'm Elliot Gotkin, and in this episode, with a passion for motor racing and cars, Giles Andrews wasn't always destined to found a fintech, and when he did, he almost crashed and burned. So things were not going, looking very good anywhere. We had a, a business in the UK that was struggling. We had a, a team in the US that was failing to come up with what we thought was a legal launch plan. Uh, we were running out of cash, and then our charismatic, inspirational leader um, gets sick and, and, and passes away. Giles Andrews, founder and board member of Zopa, chairman of Market Finance and now chairman of CarWow. Thanks so much for joining me on the FNTech podcast. Hi, Elliot. Uh, now, Zopa, for those unfamiliar with it, was actually the inventor of peer-to-peer or P2P lending. It's now a bank. Uh, but with lenders getting squeezed from both sides, how has coronavirus impacted the business? Well, like any credit business, we have to be very careful of, about the impacts of coronavirus on, on our borrowers. Both, both the way we treat people who have already got loans with us uh, and also in terms of who we uh, choose to lend or uh, make new loans to. Um, so there's no question that coronavirus represents a credit shock. Um, so far, actually, it's been more benign than people feared. So we put a lot of uh, our borrowers onto a voluntary sort of deferment schemes. Um, there was lots of regulatory guidance as to how to treat borrowers uh, in the crisis. Um, but a, 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 a higher number than, than perhaps we would have expected have come back onto sort of normal full-paying programs, if you like. Um, so the, the current um, shock seems less extreme than was feared, um, but I think you know, no one's out of the woods yet. And, and there's a question around how much of the um, softness, if you like, of the crisis has been helped by government intervention to date and therefore as we move into 2021 whether whether you know as as, as um government schemes begin to fall away whether that further knock-on effect but but touching wood furiously uh, things uh, less bad than feared in terms of new lending we're doing probably just over half of the amount of lending that we were doing before the crisis um and that's as a result of us taking a very prudent view uh, you know, the last thing we want to do is, is, is help people get into uh, uh, situations of over-indebtedness um, with, with a crisis sort of, you know, over, over their shoulders. So, so that's fine. I mean, you know, we, we can we can carry we can exist like that. Um, but obviously, we're looking forward to to recovery in, in next year and, and 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 restoration of more normal levels of business. Right. And, and as you say, you know, not all fintechs and not all neobanks or challenger banks have had a good crisis. We've seen some uh, uh, neobanks like Monzo having down rounds. We've seen uh, Ratesetter being bought for a song by Metro Bank. Although uh, I did see that um, Starling has reported a, uh, its first operating profit. But, but from your perspective, do you think the kind of shakeout in the, the world of, of neobanks and lenders is, is only just beginning? Well, I think what's really interesting is what often happens when you get an external shock is it sort of accelerates things that perhaps might have been happening already. 
Um, so so a number, a number of the, the events you've just described, I think, were in train. So I think there was a beginning question mark um, around some of the very high valuations paid for uh, neobanks that didn't really have a revenue model. Um, and I don't, I don't mean to sound uncharitable by saying that, but a, a number of them were on a understandable strategy to, to build customer bases as quickly as possible. Um, and in fact, some of them were very successful at that and, and did it quite cost effectively because of the viral nature of their app and, and, and the way their customers enjoyed dealing with them. So they were able to grow very, very quickly and, and got handsomely rewarded in terms of valuation for doing so. Um, but at the end of the day, um, numbers of customers doesn't equal revenue. Um, and, and I think that investors perhaps have begun to highlight a concern that without a more normal revenue model in, in banking, and, and frankly, the, the traditional revenue model of banking is lending, um, the sort of app store um, commission-based model um, perhaps was not valued as highly as it was pre-crisis. But I mean, I think that would have happened anyway. So I just think that the, the crisis was an, an accelerator of that trend. When you look at a business like Starling, I think they've been very fleet of foot and adopted um, government you know, C-bills and bounce-back loan programs with alacrity and perhaps done so more quickly and more efficiently than some of the incumbent players. And they've built themselves a niche. Um, and and, and that, that, that those products do involve lending. So they've sort of morphed their business model, if you like, um, and perhaps just been quicker to respond. Um, so as well publicized, they, they've moved into profitability. I mean, the, the question for them is whether or not, you know, there's sustainable profits behind, beyond uh, the government schemes, because they will need to build more normal lending businesses rather than, rather than just rely on, on the government ones. Um, but I, but I, I commend them for the, the speed with which they've, they've embraced the opportunities out there. Um, and, the, and then the last one you mentioned, rate setter, I think, I think, Frankly, that had nothing to do with COVID. I mean, I think that, that was just a, uh, you know, an overstretched business model that, that, that got itself into a, into a difficulty and, and, and ended up, unfortunately, having to be rescued by Metro Bank. Um, I, I think that, that, again, probably would have happened. Uh, in fact, it did happen. Um, forgive me for my timing, but I think it, it, was, it was either happening or did happen pre-COVID anyway. So, so, so you can't dispute the significance of a shock like COVID, but I think it perhaps just, just accelerated things that were, were, were already going to play out. Now, Zopra, of course, wasn't your first startup uh, or your last, and we'll come to that later. Um, but you came to the entrepreneurship game almost by accident. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I pursued a passion when I left university and, and did something quite unusual. Uh, I became a car dealer um, and, and it did so because I was passionately interested in, in motor cars and, and passionately interested in motor racing. Um, and yeah, when you say accidentally, I mean, I wasn't the kind of student who who, who ran nightclubs or did more traditionally entrepreneurial things that some entrepreneurial students do. Um, but 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 I ended up in a world of of trading and buying and selling, um, which in its nature, I suppose, is, is to some extent what entrepreneurialism is all about. Um, and quite quickly discovered that my enjoyment of the of the business was perhaps greater than just simply the following of my passion of cars. Um, but I stayed in the industry for 10 years uh, and was involved five years into my motor career in founding a business that, that ultimately um, became a sort of semi-national chain of car dealerships and, and was sold in, in 97, um, which was therefore the end of the first part of my motor career. But I, but I had 10 really enjoyable years. 
and I think learned about the value of things. I mean, if you're buying and selling things or ultimately running um, businesses like, like car dealerships, you know, you've got heavy P&Ls to look after, uh, lots of people to look after. Um, I think I think it was, a, with hindsight, it was a fantastic grounding in, in more general business. And, and wasn't I lucky I managed to get that grounding in a, in a world that, that I really enjoyed. Um, and, and is that the best way of is that the best way of going about things? You know, follow your passion, and then if there's a business to be made out of it, do it that way rather than thinking, right? I want to start a business. What can I do? I think it is, and I think that's much more fashionable today than it was back in the dim, that's 1987 when I started out. Um, I mean. I, I remember talking to people and sort of getting career advice and being given all the usual usual suggestions that, that someone might get when they're studying at Oxford of becoming an accountant or a lawyer or a banker or a management consultant. Um, all very worthy professions, but none of which really appealed. Um, no one in those days, age 20, or very few people age 21, went off and started a business. Um, but career advice I often give young people today is if there's something you really like doing, why not start see if you can find a way to earn a living doing it, because chances are you'll do it better than 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 one other people, and life's often a competition. Uh, and two, you know, you'll do it better than you would if if it was something that didn't engage you to the same extent. That doesn't necessarily mean start a business. Maybe it means going and working in a business. Um, but but to your question, I think I personally think that entrepreneurialism is best delivered by someone saying this is something I like doing um, and working in it. And maybe starting a business rather than sitting with a cold towel on your head saying, I want to be an entrepreneur, I want to start a business, now let me look for an idea. I, I think ideas should come more naturally and be developed rather than sort of uh, um, sweated out, if you like. With that cold towel on your head. Uh, yeah. And this um, this first business you're the in the motor industry, you I think you said you were in it for a decade and then you, you sold it. Is that right? Well, so I worked for someone else for five years. So I worked for a national chain. Um, and, and, and then met some people who wanted to start a business five years in, uh, the business was called Caverdale. Um, and, um, yeah, we, 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 we started from nothing and grew it to a sort of 250, 300 million pound turnover business and, and, and sold it in 97. Um, which was, I mean, the, the, the starting up it was, a, it was my first startup. Um, so being involved in something which literally is, 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 is an empty room, um, turning into reality was really exciting. Um, my job actually was to go off and, and travel around the country, knocking on doors, trying to find businesses to buy, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then being involved in the process of selling a business uh, was also was also fascinating. So I then went off how and did something. You, how, much did you, how much did you sell it for? Uh, well, we sold it for about fifty million pounds, all, all include all inclusive, if you like. I mean, it was a it was a it was a a, a, a divestment of a public company. Um, so it was, it, we, we started with a shell public company and we effectively ended up back again with a shell public company because we sold the main business. Um, so sort of mixed, the enterprise value we sold was about, about 50 million pounds. And then once you sold, you had, uh, you had a, a bit of money burning a hole in your pocket. And so you, you then went into angel investing, right? Well, I actually took a, I took a sabbatical, something I'd always wanted to do. Um, what the, the only frustration I had about my time in the car business was it wasn't terribly cerebral. It wasn't a huge amount of thinking. Um, and I had sort of been a student once and used, used that part of my brain. And I, I wondered if I'd like to do it again. So I, I took a sabbatical and, and went off uh, to business school in France for a year, which was a lot of fun. Met some really interesting people. Um, 
And Ashley came back from that experience and, and worked again with the, the people who, who, who we had started the car business with. Um, and in, in a way, I had more valid lessons from the next chapter than I did from the successful chapter before because we were remarkably unsuccessful. I always think you learn much more from your failures and your successes because you think about them more. Um, so so we, we, we as a group were pretty unsuccessful and, and, and all fell out and, and went our separate ways. Um, and at that point, um, I was, I suppose, in my early 30s and um, started a, a consulting business, which um, did some sort of high-level strategy work, mainly in the motor industry. Um, I did a big project off and on for a couple of years for Tesco, which was fascinating. Um, and, and as you said, doing some angel investing as well. And it was, it was, it was sort of wearing that hat that I was then approached by a friend of mine from INSEAD, uh, a guy called James Alexander, who was part of a group of people who had just left Egg, the online bank owned by the Pru. Um, and they had this mad idea for something that ultimately became Zoka. And and I joined the team initially, actually, to as a, you know, a pretty limited project. I, one of the things my consulting business did was help startups raise money and sometimes invest myself. Um, and I was engaged by the team really to help them raise um, the first funding for, for, for what became Zopa and uh, enjoyed it so much I ended up staying. And you didn't just stay, you you kind of, I mean, there was a CEO when you joined, obviously, but, but there was a kind of tragic circumstances that um, that, that led to you becoming. Yes, yeah, so there was an absolute tragedy. So the, the, the business was led by, by a guy called Richard Duval, um, who was one of two people who could probably claim to have been the creators of Egg. Um, and um, James had been, my friend James had been the strategy director of Egg. Um, and James and Richard and various other people had left. And, and Richard was the leader of that group. Um, we launched, so for, we came together in sort of early 04, developed the plan throughout 04, raised money in late summer, autumn of 2004, launched the business in 2005, um, then raised more money and built a team to launch a business in the United States in early 2006. And then um, mid-2006, Richard got very sick very suddenly uh, and died, um, uh, and died of a very aggressive form of pancreatic cancer, which is a, a terrible disease because you typically don't know you've got it um, until it, it, it surfaces, by which time it, it's, it's metastasized all over the body. And is generally incurable and very quick. And um, Richard went from feeling unwell um, to go and see a doctor to dying within a month. Um, it was quite extraordinary. And that's really tough for a startup. I mean, for two reasons. One, you know, startups are often identified very closely with their leaders and their founders. And Richard was a really larger-than-life character. He was a really inspirational figure, inspirational to everyone in the team, particularly those who knew him really well, who'd worked with him and being similarly inspired by him at Egg. So there was, you know, the loss of a leader. And to many people, there was a loss of a great friend. Um, and, 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 and frankly, I think Zopa really could have sort of failed at that point. We were, we were not doing very well. We were, I think, ahead of our time in the UK, struggling with customer adoption, struggling with, you know, all the things that perhaps seem obvious with hindsight, um, struggling to build trust in consumers for this radical idea of, of getting consumers to give us their money and trust us to lend it to other people and, and get it back with a return. You know, we were struggling with the whole tr trust proposition behind that. Um, thankfully, we'd raised quite a lot of money, so we had some runway 
Um, we're also struggling in the United States where we had very strong legal advice that to do what we were, what we did in the UK would be illegal in the US because it would contravene securities law because uh, the, the, the sort of broking of a loan or loan parts would, would be deemed by the SEC to be um, dealing in securities. Um, two people launch businesses in the United States, firstly a company called Prosper and then a company called Lending Club, um, which both of which were deemed to be acting illegally by our lawyers, uh, which subsequently transpired to be correct because they they both uh, shut down um, and had to reinvent themselves in a, in, a, in a much more expensive, cumbersome, SEC-compliant manner. So things were not going, looking very good anywhere. We had a, a business in the UK that was struggling. We had a, a team in the US that was failing to come up with what we thought was a legal launch plan. Uh, we were running out of cash. And then our charismatic, inspirational leader um, gets sick and, and, and passes away. So, you know, perfect storm of, uh, of difficulty, really. Yeah, how how on earth did you survive that? Uh, I think well, we we had um, we had we had a very patient group of investors who I think didn't lose the faith in the idea. Uh, I think at times they'd lost the faith in the team, but they didn't necessarily lose faith in the idea. Um, and we sort of dusted ourselves down and thought about how to embrace, uh, attack the future. We actually hired a guy uh, in the US initially uh, who. I think our investors were keen for us to sort of move and 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 become a more US-centered business. The opportunity, if we could get the regulatory piece right, was bigger in the US than the UK, and the UK business was con- continuing to struggle. We were all alone in the UK. There were no signs of anyone copying us because I think everyone thought we were mad. Um, and so we hired a, a guy uh, to, to lead the US business who ultimately um, led the whole thing, um, and I took on the UK business. And I think... The reason I took it on was probably because of the founding team. I was the one, although much shorter on financial service experience than anybody else, I was the one who'd, who'd run small businesses. And, 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 you know, it felt like Zopa was a, a fairly small, scrappy opportunity and therefore perhaps best suited to me. Um, most of my colleagues, extremely bright, talented people, had backgrounds in consulting and things like that, which perhaps would have been more useful in, in, a much, in, the, in the much larger business that we'd always thought we'd be. Um, but in the in in the small business, uh, perhaps less so. So I led a pretty radical downsizing in people terms in the UK, which was a horrible thing to do, but 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 entirely necessary. Um, reduced the cost in the UK dramatically, um, and then I actually put a plan forward uh, with the backing of the US CEO that we should shut the US business because the UK seemed to be turning a bit of a corner by now. We're at the beginning of the credit crisis. Um, Zopa's been around for three years, uh, beginning to build a bit of trust, got a bit of a lending track record, and then had a remarkably good credit crisis. Um, and faced with all of that, it seemed to me that the best thing to do would be to shut this loss-making U.S. business that didn't have a real plan and, and concentrate uh, all the resources we had in the business on, on a smaller but, but for the first time rapidly growing U.K. business. So, so um, I moved, therefore, from you know leading the UK business to leading what was then the whole of Zopa, and spent you know seven or eight years as a CEO of the company. Right. I mean, you just mentioned in passing there that you had a good credit crisis. I think I saw you quoted recently as saying uh, uh, that the financial crisis was actually the making of Zopa. How did you not only come through that crisis, which I guess is always a great test of a of a company's metal, um, but thrive through it and and come out 
stronger than you were going into it? Well, I think it was sort of partly the law of unintended consequences in, in a way. We made a, a, a decision early on that we would focus on very prime lending. Uh, and forgive the jargon, prime lending means, you know, lending to highly creditworthy people, the kind of people who actually would, would quite easily get a, a loan from a bank. Uh, so not lending to the underserved. And we did that because, well, for a number of reasons. One, morally, I've never been hugely comfortable with subprime lending and, you know, the, the fact that I think often you're contributing to people's financial difficulties rather than helping them. Um, so, so, so that that was an, an issue, certainly to me and, and, and other members of the founding team. But also, we, we were students of behavioral economics and we were we were trying to encourage lenders to give us their money to lend to other people. And we 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 thought, and I think this was right with hindsight, that people value their losses or take their losses much more seriously, notice them much more than their gains. So imagine a world where in two different paradigms, one where you're lending money to high-risk borrowers, you're making a high coupon, if you like, high gross return for lending to those high-risk borrowers. Say you're making 30-40% coupon, but you're losing 20-30% to of that in bad debt uh, versus a situation where you're lending at way lower uh, headline rates of interest, but you're losing almost none of it and ending up, in theory, on paper at least, with a worse return, i.e. low risk, low low gross return, but also probably a lower net return than than a higher risk world. And we picked that low risk, low return world because we thought that um, lots of noise around defaults would damage the trust in this new idea. And our, our lenders would be massively focused on what were we doing in collections all these people you've lent money to they're not repaying it you know huge amount of noise you could imagine a, a, a chat forum full of flame comments about you know what's so doing lending to these people and, and and they don't repay you know they must be criminals all that kind of stuff so all pretty ill-informed stuff perhaps but we thought that that would damage trust yet a world that was very stable and steady and no one got usually, you know, returns at Zopo say in 2007 were about 6%. Um, so good, solid return, good long-term return, but but not the sexiest return in the world. Um, now, contrast that with the US, where certainly Prosper, for example, went out completely the other way and went out with this high-risk, high high-return strategy where lenders got greedy and thought, wow, I can make 30 40%. Um, and sure enough, even before the crisis, some of what we'd forecast did play out. They, there was a lot of noise um, and Prosper as a company were very untrusted by their lenders because they were perceived to be doing a good job lending money to a bunch of deadbeats, which wasn't the case. It's just a, uh, that's a function, if you like, of, of some of this high-risk lending. It, you know, it's high-risk for a reason. Lots of the people you lend to don't, don't pay it back. Um, whereas our world was steady and stable, uh, steady as she goes. And then if you fast forward a year or two, and you, you go into a crisis, of course, the subprime world completely blows up. So this this sexy high return translates actually into losses. So regardless of that, the, the, the size of the growth yield, uh, credit losses were bigger, and therefore lenders lost money. Um, certainly in the early versions of Prosper and Lending Club, net lender returns were, were negative, whereas our returns never went negative. Um, credit losses went up a little bit in the crisis, but, but not to the extent that, that returns went negative. And I think in you know mid-2008, people started looking at those Oprah accounts thinking, blimey, you know, stock market's fallen 30%. My house value's gone down, the estate agents tell me, yet, yet my Oprah return is trucking along. 
uh, perhaps I ought to give them a bit more money. Perhaps I ought to reallocate a little bit of my asset um, my asset base into this thing called OPA. Um, savings rates fell off a cliff, as, as you'll remember, because emergency action from the bank, from the Bank of England, lowering interest rates, trying to stimulate the economy. So savings rates went down dramatically to effectively zero. Yet our returns, instead of being six at Zopa versus four at you know, the best online accounts, it, it perhaps moved to four or five at Zopa versus zero. Um, so for the first time in the company's history in 2008, we started seeing significant flows of money into the business. Now, that wouldn't have happened unless we'd made that decision pre-crisis to focus on prime borrowers. So as I said, the law of run, it's not the reason we didn't work clever enough to foresee the crisis coming. Um, but a decision we made, I think for good reasons, turned out to be, with hindsight, an even better decision, given what happened uh, in, in the credit crisis. Um, and then from a PR perspective, of course, banks became, you know, nobody's best friend and, and lots of bad publicity. The PPI scandal hit about the same time. And you had surveys saying banks were even less popular than estate agents and politicians. Um, and, and, and we had a, a fantastic sort of, you know, free pass in the world of PR for, for being the good guys in finance. So, you know, you couldn't have designed uh, a more favorable situation for us. And luckily, we positioned ourselves, perhaps slightly unknowingly, very well for it in advance. And just to remind you, this podcast is part of the Paris Fintech Forum Communities Programme for 2021. In this special pandemic period, you can enjoy throughout the year top-level live sessions with key industry players, exclusive on-demand interviews such as this one, and use our innovative digital networking capabilities to meet your peers, develop your network, create new business opportunities, and continue to build together the future of the fin and tech industry. You can find out more at www.parisfintechforum.com. And it's interesting that you positioned yourself almost like the anti-bank. You know, banks came out of the crisis with their reputations in tatters uh, and also obviously profitability very, you know, uh, adversely impacted. Likewise, with some of these other um, lenders, you mentioned uh, Prosper in the United States, for example. And so effectively, Zopa has been, you know, doing things differently from banks for so long. But now, of course, you are a bank. You have a banking license. Um has that changed your view of the banks at all? Do you kind of feel a bit more sympathy for them? I don't know. Do you say, oh, well, it's a tough job uh, being a bank or, or now you're just quite happy to do things differently and better than they are um, and and be a bank, but be a good bank? Well, there's a sort of added twist to the tale in all of this because I've just joined the board of a bank as well, um, uh, a Bank of Ireland in, in, in Dublin. Um, I mean, I think we... we, we it's great fun when you're running a startup and you're running a, a challenging business to sort of you know, make fun of the differences between you and incumbents, uh, whatever the industry is. Um, in our industry, uh, the incumbents were banks. Um, they, I don't think it's controversial to say they really didn't cover themselves in glory uh, in the in the years up to the credit crisis. You know, the, the PPI missale was an appalling abuse of trust, um, and they've rightly been pilloried for it. Um, but they also, I think, didn't run their businesses terribly well, um, did lots of rash lending, and some very large profits covered up, I think, a very bloated cost structure and, and a set of inefficient businesses. I mean, I'm, I'm not, not going to personalise it to anyone in particular, but I think you, you probably recognise that, that picture in, 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 in any of, of the major banks. 
Um, so, so at the time, I didn't feel any sympathy for them at all, um, and I thought they were a very fair game and 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 not particularly high quality competitors. Um, and and we had an opportunity to focus on our differences and what, why we were better. And some of those differences were the fact that we were free of legacy. You know, we we had our own tech stack that we were in control of that was high quality. We were agile. We were fleet of foot. Um, and that's a huge advantage. Um, and, and the banks, not only did they have difficult legacy problems in terms of technology and systems, but they also had legacy problems in terms of looking over their shoulders at previous conduct errors. You know, they weren't able to, I was, I said at the time, you know, banks had to unfortunately spent a lot of time looking in the rear view mirror and we could stare straight ahead. At, at, uh, sorry, sorry for terrible cliche metaphor, but we could stare ahead at sort of, you know, exciting uplands and, and, and they were looking in their rear view mirror at, at fires and, and storms. Um, so we had a, a great opportunity. I think over the 10 years since then, I think you have to say that banks have done a pretty good job of, of restoring themselves. Uh, I think, you know, there are now surveys saying in many cases, banks are actually better trusted than some of the fintech upstarts that are arguably doing a better job for their customers. Um, and, and therefore, the, you know, the incumbency, the trust in the incumbent has, has, has risen. Um, and I, I have begun to feel perhaps a little bit more sorry for them because some of the problems they have in terms of legacy systems haven't gone away um, and, and they're still having to grapple with them. But but in terms of our decision to move away from our world of peer-to-peer lending, it's it's actually quite logical. So so our peer-to-peer lending product, the investment product, should I say, um, where we take people's money and turn that into loans to customers, works very very well for a big portion of of consumer lending called unsecured personal loans. Unsecured personal loans have a characteristic: they repay consistently over time. So they're amortizing loans. People repay capital and interest each month on them. And that allows Zopa as the, you know, the, the, the organizer of that process to turn those cash flows of monthly regular payments into something that looks a bit more like a, an investment product that people understand. So, you know, the, the, the returns compound. Um, and you, you can, you can, you can create a sort of aggregate percentage that all those Different, different borrowers are paying uh, to create a, an overall return from the investment product. That's great, and and by the way, that will continue, and we'll you know we'll, we'll carry on doing that, and uh, and it works very well and very efficiently. Um, it's very capital light. Uh, you know, bank, banks obviously have to hold a lot of regulatory capital, and, and peer to peer lenders don't. The margins are low because we take small fees rather than making an interest margin. But if you sort of counterbalance the lack of capital needed for the activity versus the low fees, you end up with a sort of low capital, um, low margin business that's interesting. But it's limited to the kind of loan product that amortizes and we can turn into a regular return. And and you know, the a much bigger uh, loan category, certainly in the UK and the US, is credit cards. You know, the, the balances outstanding on credit cards dwarf the balance is outstanding on personal loans. Um, and we couldn't figure out how to turn a credit card book into something that would pay this kind of regular income to a peer-to-peer investor. Um, yet we thought when we look at what we're good at, 
we're very good at unskewed lending decisions. So therefore, you know, it seems like the lending decisions um, to grant a credit card are probably pretty similar to the, to, to giving a loan. We, we've we've consistently operated, uh, you know, a loan book with with lower levels of losses than than pretty well anyone else in the UK, including all the big banks. So we're good at lending. We're good at recruiting customers digitally. We're good at sourcing customers digitally using you know, digital channels. We are the, we've been the number one personal loan provider on the big aggregator sites like Money Supermarket and Compare the Market, people like that, for, for many, many years. We, you know, with the highest um, net promoter score, uh, the highest uh, virality recommending of customer to, from customer to customer, um, and, and the highest penetration on those sites. So we sell more personal loans on money supermarket than any UK bank does. Um, so again, you know, most, in fact, even more credit card com- customers research and buy their credit cards using those channels than, than buy personal loans. So we thought, well, we're quite good at that as well. Um, and we're good at the whole sort of service interface um, angle. Um, you know, I mentioned net promoter schools. We have net promoter schools consistently in the 80s. Um, which is almost unheard of in financial services. Um, so if you put all that together, it made enormous sense to try and find a way to finance credit cards. Um, and it, that was the sort of sequence of thinking was we'd like to move our, you know, uh, we'd like to grow our business by moving adjacently into the world of credit card lending, which feels very similar for all the reasons I just mentioned to personal loan lending. Um, but we can't do it as a peer-to-peer player. So how do we do it? So we investigated pretty well every way to building a credit card business, including going into wholesale markets um, and and raising you know more traditional debt finance and using that to build a lending business. And on paper, you know, if you back, back to your famous spreadsheets, like 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 people were operating pre-crisis on paper, that all looks actually fine. Um, wholesale markets are quite competitive at the moment. You know, it's not necessarily a whole lot more expensive than bank deposits. Um, and obviously, it's massively easier from a regulatory point of view because if you don't take deposits, you don't need a bank license. So, so we rejected it as a business model because of the risks that played out so heavily in the financial crisis. So, you look at the people who got into real trouble, particularly you know Northern Rock, Bradford and Bingley, people like that, were uh, businesses that had effectively sourced this new kind of fantastic, perfect funding models uh, called wholesale markets and securitization, which all dried up. In the crisis, so we came back to thinking, well, actually, the best way to build a long-term, sustainable business involved in credit card lending is is by financing the business through through retail deposits, which ergo means you know going and getting a banking license. So we didn't set up one day and say we want to be a bank. We said becoming a bank or launching a bank is a very practical way to fulfil the strategic intention of the business to become a significant credit card lender. Um, I think there's a subtle but important difference, um, and 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 so unlike perhaps some of the challenges we've talked about earlier on the podcast, you know, which really set out to be bank. Um, I don't. I, I'm not belittling the importance of of, of our decision to, to to launch a bank or our you know responsibilities in being a bank or the way we interact with the regulator. They're the same as everybody else. But 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 the the sort of you know the strategic mission was to to diversify and spread our funding sources to allow us to build a more diversified lending business. And as a more diversified lending business, as a as a bank now, uh, is is Zopa profitable? 
Um, not right now, it's not. No, it, it's been profitable for a number of years, which I'm very proud of. We don't make a huge amount of noise about it, but 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 we certainly, I mean, we first been profitable in about 2011, I think, um, uh, out of necessity because we didn't have any money, so we had to make money. Um, and, and then over time, we've sort of used that as a as a story to do some fundraising. Blimey, that's a very loud drill. Um, to, do, to do some fundraising. Um, we were then profitable again in... Uh, 16, 17. Um, but, the, you know, you can't underestimate the cost of building a bank, uh, both both from a time perspective and um, obviously the regulatory interaction. And, and we've chosen to build all our, our own technology. You have to invest in people and systems ahead of the curve. So, so you have to invest substantially in the business. So right now we're loss making. Um, but we raised 150 million quid uh, to, to launch our bank. Um, so we're extremely well capitalized, I mean, well capitalized way in excess of any temporary losses we're making. Uh, and, and, and unlike perhaps some of the other challenges, the purpose of that fundraise is regulatory capital to lend. You know, we can build a balance sheet very rapidly because we know how to do lending. Um, we're not, you know, that 150 million pounds is not there to finance our losses while we figure out what we're going to do. It's, it's, it's regulatory capital. Um, for our balance sheet uh, to to enable us to um, to, to lend you know a billion quid. And, and is there some kind of exit strategy here? Is is an IPO likely to happen at some point, or perhaps a sale to another bank, or or a consolidation with another neo bank? I mean, I think I think we'd all like to see the business IPO. I mean, I, I think um, public markets are, would be a, a good ultimate destination for our business. Um, you know. I say that for a number of reasons. One, I, you know, I think Zope is all about people and customers, and you know, we've got lots of investors who put the money in with us before, as in our peer-to-peer product, who are giving us savings. We've got lots of interaction with people, and wouldn't it be nice if they they would also to have the chance to own some shares in the company? Um, so that's the, sort of the nice story. Um, but also, you know, we're, we're we're very ambitious, and we want to build a really big business, um, and and you know, we'd like to be perhaps too big to consume and, and therefore that's another good reason why why public public markets are a good ultimate uh, destination also i think that the disciplines we've had to put into the business first of all becoming a regulated peer-to-peer lender which was something we haven't talked about but that was a complicated journey that we we led the charge for um and you know involved building compliance functions and things which meant that the challenges of applying for a banking license were less than were we a startup because we were already a regulated business. So we understood a bit about the regulators and we'd had to make some investments, not to the same extent as you do when you're operating a bank. But certainly we had to make some investments in, in compliance functions and, 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 and things like that, assurance. Um, so that meant the step to becoming a bank was perhaps slightly easier. And I think launching a bank, um, which is you know hugely uh, onerous process, actually puts you in quite good stead for the IPO process um, because, you know, you have to be a very grown-up company to operate as a bank uh, and you have to be a very grown-up company to be listed on the public markets. So it's not exactly the same, but certainly I think that sort of the work we, we had to do to satisfy regulators is not dissimilar to the work we'd have to do to satisfy um, public market investors. And just to be clear, although this would be an ultimate ambition, that there are no actual plans at this stage right now for an IPO. No, we're very, very busy um, growing the business again. And, and, you know, given the constraints we talked about at the beginning of the call, uh, perhaps not lending quite as much as we thought we would have done pre-crisis, but certainly still 
um, very focused on growing our business. And, 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 and timing's important. You know, you want to IPO as a, a, a business at real scale. So, you, you know, you're in the right industries and things like that. You don't want to do it as a, as a very small business. So, so the answer is not yet. But I think, you know, it's appropriate to start thinking about uh, what you need to do to become IPO ready. Um, so it's more than a pipe dream, for sure. It's definitely a plan. And interestingly, you've almost gone full circle now because although you are you've kind of moved upstairs with uh with zopa uh, you've kind of gone back to the car industry now and and uh, a chairman of a of a business called car wow now this is a fintech podcast i don't want to dwell too much on the on the cars but maybe you can just kind of tell us a, a little bit about that well, that's exciting so i i never sort of lost touch with people in the industry um and and i i got a call six or seven years ago from a then very young man called James Hind, um, who um, had a plan to build a, a, an online car business. And um, uh, I think James found me as a sort of London-based tech entrepreneur who knew something about the car industry. And there's probably pretty limited cast list of people uh, who fit, fitted those criteria. And, and, and I acted as a sort of informal advisor, sounding board for a number of years, got to know him well. And was incredibly impressed by what he achieved. Um, so he has built up a business now that has about six percent of the UK retail car market, um, where people we we effectively act as an introducer um, and help customers get a better deal, uh, help them choose a car, and help them find a place to buy it, um, and, and act as a middleman, if you like, between the dealer and the customer, and solving quite a lot of, quite a lot of traditional problems customers have in in buying cars. Um, so built a business of scale with a fantastic roster of investors. So you know, on his cap table, he's got so one Balderton, Axel, Vitruvian, and most recently Dame LeBend. Um, so raised a lot of money and and is in a brilliant position. Rolled out the business in Germany and Spain, and I, and I think you know the car industry has changed less perhaps than any industry I can think of, even even less than financial services. Been slower to adopt digital. Um, but I think you've seen, you know, Carwise is in a fantastic place. We deal with new cars. You've seen Alex Chesterman's business, Kazoo, very focused on new cars, growing very rapidly as well. I mean, I think digital's finally hitting that industry. And I'm just delighted to uh, be, a little, be a small part of it. Um, and, and just finally, Giles, uh, you know, you've told us about your story ab- about Zopra as well. I was listening to a podcast the other day and uh, one of the, the person being interviewed was actually asked what questions what great questions you asked and and he, one of the things that he said was uh, you know a great thing to ask someone is is what's the weirdest thing you've ever built or created in your life so uh, having listened to that and inspired by that I'm going to put that question to you as the as the last one the weirdest thing I've ever built or created yes I think the craziest thing I ever did was try and restore a derelict world war ii listed house in the east end of london in 1992 um which was completely mad and a source of a mixture of profound joy and appalling stress (laughs) but um uh i I, I can't think of anyone else who'd have taken it on um and uh yeah you're not living in it now or something are you not living in it now but but had a lot of as i said a mixture of a lot of fun uh, restoring it, tearing my hair out with the listing authorities, um, um, and ultimately, yeah, I've, I've recreated a home that 
I think the person who bought it from us still lives in it about 20 years later. A, a lovely home. Well, great. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a metaphor for, for the businesses you've also helped create as I think the builder starts up his drill again uh, outside where you are. So we'll leave it there. But uh, thank you, Giles Andrews, co-founder of Zopa, chairman of CarWow and Market Finance. Really appreciate your taking the time to join us and I wish you well um, in 2021. Thanks very much, Elliot. Good to speak to you. And I'm uh, sorry about the building noise. <laughs> this is the world we live in now. Thank you. can't plan for crises or for workmen drilling holes in your wall during podcasts, but you can be prepared. And although Giles Andrews is too modest to take the credit, his leadership clearly wasn't incidental in Zopa's sailing through the global financial crisis. But I think my favourite takeaway from our conversation is his advice to see if you can earn a living from doing something you're passionate about rather than the other way around, not least because you'll probably be better at it than someone who lacks that affinity. And although cars are clearly Giles's first love, I'm pretty sure finance must come a close second. So thank you, Giles Andrews, and thank you for listening to the FinTech podcast with me, Elliot Gotkin, now part of the Paris FinTech Forum Communities Programme. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and you can get updates and listen to all previous episodes via the website, www.parisfintechforum.com. If you've got any comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at ParisFinForum or at Elliot Gotkin. That's it from me. Thanks again to BPI France for sponsoring this podcast. We'll be back again next week for more of the best F in tech. Hope you'll join us again then. Bye-bye.